Welcome to Line of Sight. My name is Don Heider. I'm the Executive Director of the Markless Center for Applied Ethics at Santa Clara University. And I'm Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship, also at Santa Clara University. Today, we have with us Mohini Mahotra, who is an amazing person, as we will all soon find out, uh, with more than 30 years of experience as a development economist, working with bilateral, nonprofit, consulting firms, and multilateral development banks in all regions of the world. She was at the World Bank from 1995 to 2014 in various leadership capacities, including where I first met her, which is when she was managing CGAP which is a global multi-donor partnership program on financial inclusion, primarily aimed at women. She led a program to upgrade slums and housing for the poor through the Cities Alliance, a global partnership, and headed the the South Asia program based in India on building country capacity across a whole range of topics. And she worked a lot with civil society organizations there. She's advised governments in Africa, Latin America, Eastern Europe, and Asia on small business and private sector development initiatives. Now, she is an adjunct professor at Georgetown University's Graduate School of Foreign Service, teaching a core course she designed on principled leadership, which I'm super interested in. She's also a senior advisor with a couple of international nonprofit organizations and runs her own social art venture to support women and girls globally. She is a volunteer board member of two DC-based nonprofits, Sitar Arts Center, working with low-income youth in DC through the arts, and the Center for Health and Gender Equity. So Mohini is amazing. Obviously, we've just already established that. She's originally from Nepal, and she lives in Washington, D.C. She speaks English, Nepali, Hindi, Italian, and Spanish. So we can, you know, interview her in any of those languages. (laughs) So, Mohini, welcome, first of all. Thanks for being here. Thank you. And I'd like to ask first, you know, why the focus on women's economic empowerment? Is this where you started your career? You know, it's not. I came into it by default. And it was really back, Bridget, I think um, after, you know, I'd been working in the space of financial inclusion and finance for people who don't typically access the financial institutions that those of us, I'm assuming, on the Zoom meeting do. And it was more by default that there was this discovery that women were just better risk bets for an institution. Women repaid their loans. And it's not to say women are just born more noble, although I'd like to throw that into as a possible hypothesis, but it was really that it was the last resort. Women didn't have other alternatives. If you didn't pay back that little loan that somebody entrusted you with, you had no other place to go. There, That was plan A to Z. And that started me thinking about, you know, when you also looked at some of the investments that women made when they were granted these small loans. And Bridget, I know you've written so much about, I mean, like this is old hat to you, right? But it was sort of a better bet because the money that you invested in a woman went for things like education or more nutritious food, et cetera, et cetera, for the family. But starting from that, so I didn't start off saying I'm going to work on behalf of women. I started off saying I care about poverty and the world being more equal. And it just so happened 
that the world is unequal. So yes, there's poverty and it's nasty to anybody it meets, but it's nastier to women. And if you wanted to work in development and you wanted to you care about equality, then you're going to work for people who are left out of the system and who are treated unequally, whether it's women, whether it's people of color, whether it's African-American people in this country or Asian-Americans, or you could take whoever is othered. And sometimes other is 50% of the population, right? When we look at things like the sustainable development goals, you look at what, how there are like what, 49 countries where women have unequal inheritance rights. You look at 60% of the people in the world who are chronically hungry happen to be women and girls. When you look at who's illiterate, the majority are women and girls. And and we could just go on and on. When you look at who's affected by violence, including at a household level, it's women. And then you take a pandemic and you take that and you times it by 10, right? So I wish we didn't have to talk about why women. (laughs) And I hope one day we don't have to talk about why women, but I think we're talking about why women. Can you talk a little bit about uh, leadership development and how that relates to your work in international development? You know, Don, I'm really glad you asked that question because I don't think when I entered the field of international development, I really thought about these issues. You know, we were technical. Like, I think the whole field, the world is sectioned by topics. So you're a water specialist or you're a finance specialist. And and the countries we had always worked in or I've worked in are also sectioned by water ministries and finance ministries. And so we live in these compartmentalized worlds and we think that by having more and more technical depth and knowledge to bring, we're going to solve all those problems. And the reality is, as humans, we resist change. And development is about being adaptive to new ideas and different ideas and dropping ideas and new practices. And sometimes there are deep, deep, deep cultural and social underpinnings to why those ideas last, whether they get us to a better place as we define it. And so why do we resist change as humans, right? Why? What makes us resistant to what seems something that would be more obvious to us. And I think I started later really appreciating how little we think about the human aspects of development, right? We don't think about how do we think about change? What what is adaptive leadership? How do we need to sort of think about mindset shifts? You know, what goes into that kind of work? And I don't think as development economists, we're trained to think like that. And so the more I thought about where has been some of the most effective change that I've worked on, or it's really when you kind of connect at a very different level, then, you know, yes, you need to build more schools. I mean, one one example to that, I remember working on sort of girls' education. It's like, well, you build more schools and they will come. Well, no, the reason parents weren't sending, and then there's an underlying belief that, oh, well, parents don't believe in girls' education. And none of that was true. Those were our bad assumptions. The reason parents weren't sending their kids to school in Bangladesh because they they weren't any different bathrooms built for girls. The reason people weren't sending their kids to school in Pakistan, and we all know Malala stories because there was no transportation. It was unsafe for girls to walk. Turns out it was unsafe for girls to ride a rickshaw as well. So I think we came in with presumptions that people are anti-girl education, but really there were just fundamental cultural reasons that were really the barrier that we needed to understand, ask different questions, right? So that I think over time, and so now I work on leadership development with young people going to development careers to kind of like, how do you build this in into how you analyze or how you 
come up with solutions, but how you understand the problem in the first place, how do you ask the right questions in the first place. You know, I think one of the challenges of uh, teaching leadership to young folks is that sometimes you're training them for something that they may not encounter for another three or four or five years. Very few of them are going to start in a leadership position. Uh, They're going to get there, but so how do you sort of... um, inscribe on them these lessons and this understanding uh, of being adaptive when you know that they may not be able to, I mean, they're going to be able to put it to work in small ways in everything we do in life. But in terms of as a, as an actual uh, leader manager, it may be, you know, four or five, eight years out. Um, I love your question. And it's a question every student asks at the beginning. Well, I'm not a leader. I start off by saying who here sees your Who's a leader? And nobody raises their hand. And I say leader, leadership is a verb. It's not a position. It's not a noun. And it's an act. And we all do it sometimes and not every day, whether we hold a position or not. And so the framework that I use, especially dealing, well, first of all, let me start by saying I teach at the master's level at Georgetown. And many of my students are, are already junior diplomats. They're from the State Department. They work there, you know, young foreign service officers. I would say many are in their late 30s, uh, late 20s, and some in their early 30s. So they've actually had quite a lot of work experience, right? Five, six years coming into their master's by, by just the criteria for the program. So they've had a lot of experience and they may not view it as a leadership position, but the frame that I use in the course that I teach is starting with leadership of self. You can almost think of concentric circles or an ink blot that bleeds outward. So it starts with leadership of self because you're really not, none of us are in a position to, to lead others until we know how to lead ourselves. And just kind of aligning with what's my sense of purpose, right? Why have I chosen to be in this program? Why do I care about these issues? So it starts a lot with leading self and kind of going pretty deep into what does that mean? And, and students come up with a vision statement, like a life vision statement. And that gets that gets to be really kind of almost an emotional um, exercise, right? We don't give ourselves space to think about these things day to day. And then what does it mean to lead with others, right, in a small team? What are the assumptions we bring into a difficult conversation? What assumptions do we bring about people who don't look like us? I mean, there's this scary, scary statistics. We judge other people's trust and uh, competence in a quarter second. In a quarter of a second, we make judgment calls, right? It's all that stuff in our heads. And, and we're not even conscious of that. So a, a lot, we do a lot of work on implicit bias, explicit bias. We do a lot of work on engaging in difficult conversations. I'm sure you're all familiar with that book. Um, Patton and Sheen have, and Heen have written on difficult conversations. And so much of it is about resting your own assumptions um, not attributing something to others just because you're reacting to how you how it you know impact and intent and all of that. And so I feel like those are just really useful life skills that you practice. And at whatever stage you are and wherever you are, those are just good skills to have. And they prepare you for when you get into positional leadership. What's been the reaction of the students to this course? And ha- now you've done it for a few years now. Mm-hmm. So have you had any feedback, you know, later on from some of the students. Uh, yeah, I'd, I'd love to hear that. So the immediate reaction is, I, so I did a survey this time, and this time I had to teach it totally on Zoom. Students were all over the world. That was a whole other dimension. And I did a survey and said, how many of you would take this course if you didn't have to? It's a required course. 
And I'd say 50% said they would not have signed up for it if it weren't a required course. And I think they have a fear, a little bit of a fear that this leadership stuff goes into the woo-woo zone. You know, that we're going to be holding hands and doing seances. I mean, I think people come in with all sorts of biases. The feedback overall, at the end of it, they say, why is this only a seven-week course? Why isn't it a full semester? And can we can we advocate? And I, we just had a download with the department yesterday. And they said a lot of the students came and lobbied that they wanted this to now to be a 14-week course, which is, I think, affirmation that they find it useful. And the students from the very first time that I taught it, which is now three years, um, some just wrote to me for a letter of recommendation. Uh, can you please talk about, you know, my TED talk in the leadership development class that I did? Because they all have to take an adaptive leadership assignment. So overall, it's been growing. And from kind of skepticism in the beginning, I think now it's kind of a solid core program. The feedback has been good. Yeah, I'm not surprised by that. And I think that what's interesting, too, about this um, is that you're not a university professor. You don't have the typical background or qualifications of the others because you're not the only one teaching the course. There are other people also teaching the course. So I I find it really fascinating that, um, well, and great that Georgetown had the kind of wherewithal to bring in someone like you to design this course. But I'm almost 100% positive that some of the other professors are not teaching it in the same way. You know, just, you know, I'm sure that, you know, you, you're using adult education and uh, experiential learning techniques that are a little different from the usual classroom experience. So um, I want to take your course, by the way. <laughs> I think we did have shared a lot of notes on this, right? I mean, early on, we talked about how we love um, the Lencioni book, and it continues to be a masterpiece hit with the students. They find it incredibly accessible. They can resonate with all of those situations that are described in the, in the book. They've all met all the characters. <laughs> they yeah. have been those characters. So I think of a lot of the literature, because I use the Heifetz book on adaptive leadership as kind of the mantra. But I think the Lencioni book brings it home. Mm -hmm. And, and yeah. you have talked about it. I understand that he's close to where you all are, right? Yeah, actually, not only that, but Santa Clara through the Silicon Valley Executive Center has the kind of rights to the certification on the five dysfunctions of a team methodology, which I, you know, I've been, I've been working with it for whatever, 15 years, and I'd only found out after I was hired into this position that uh, we had this kind of uh, relationship. It's very cool. One of the other things I wanted to mention to you, though, that I really that really resonates with what you're saying is is this idea of leadership being, you know, more than just being smart technically. And, you know, I have developed over the years my my personal motto about smart is not enough. Right. Because you can work with the most brilliant people, amazing strategies. But if you, if you don't have what it takes to kind of connect to the human beings and help them to internalize the need to change or do something different. It, it doesn't really matter. So I like the idea of like leadership of self and then leader of leadership of others as well. Um, one other thing I just wanted to follow up on, how have you handled the um, issues around race in your leadership course? Have you talked about 
everything that's been going. I'm assuming you have, but I'd be interested to know what how that rolls out. You know, I'm glad that you brought that up, Bridget. So because yesterday when we had this faculty discussion about how do how do you address how do you respectfully bring DEI issues into a leadership course? And then I said, but really, Georgetown, these students are there for two years. Is this half semester deep required course, the only space where we talk about this? How are we addressing it? That's a lot of weight to put in one place. I Can I just say, and I know I'm going to sound a little bit snipey here, but I was the only <laughs> non-white person in this whole discussion as well. And um, one thing Georgetown has started to do to really look at how, how are, is this being addressed was to look at your syllabus and note who the authors are, right? And do it by men, women, um, US, uh, non-US, et cetera, et cetera. And I found that to be, a lot of people were kind of dissing that exercise, thinking it's shallow, but I always feel you have to start somewhere. So I actually thought it was really useful. I've been using, I, I use a, a clip from a TED Talk by Simon Sinek. The golden circle, start with the why, not the what, right? Whether it's your, your you know, what's your purpose? If you're a company, if you're an individual, and I've always found it to be effective. But then I, with everything going on, was also listening to a lot of Stacey Abrams, and she has a fabulous, what's your purpose? Three questions to ask yourself. Um, tape. And I threw Simon Sinek out and brought in Stacey. I mean, A, she's Stacey. B, if, you know, we're talking about voting rights. And, and what she brought us, right? Can't say enough gratitude and how awesome she is and how beautifully she brings us. And I just, in doing this exercise, and I thought I had a fair amount of diversity, I did nix some people and brought in people who I think made the case so much more effectively, but also visually and also who they and what they represent from a diversity perspective of whose voice counts and how do you measure that. And then I have questions that I pose. You know, some of the literature is hype. It's, it's a lot of white men at Harvard who have written really profound stuff. You know, Marshall Gans. I mean, I love the man and what he does in terms of leadership of social movements, whose work I bring in. And so I respect the work that's there, but I raise a lot of questions about what if, let's flip who the people are in this case study, or they role play, right? I have them role play on a difficult conversation case study where there's a woman coming in for a performance evaluation and her boss is a guy. Or I have work that I bring in where there's an African-American executive and the conversation, how that matters. And then I bring in the questions. I But I could be, I need to do more on this. I would love ideas from you all. I know you at Santa Clara are thinking deeply about these issues. Bridget, I know you are from prior conversation at the Miller Center, the work you're doing. I know you all are. And Don, I don't know enough about your work, but I have no doubt you're doing this and Lydia. So any any intelligence on that, I, I, I'd be grateful. It's the area of feedback where when I ask the students, do you think we did enough on this issue? They said we could do more. They said that was okay, but but we need more. And I, and I totally respect that. I think you hit on one big issue, and that is uh, if it's a any graduate program, any undergraduate program, it has to be integrated in every course. You know, you can't put the burden on one course or one person to do it. That said, uh, my field is communications, and historically, uh, once we decided to address diversity, which of course took, you know, several centuries to get to. Uh, it was the last chapter in almost every ch textbook. Uh, ethics and diversity. So you, here's the meat of the course, 
And then the add-ons are ethics and diversity. And so um, a colleague and I, 20 years ago, decided to flip that and start with ethics and diversity and build it in as the foundations for everything else we do in the course. And that way, it's, it sort of normalizes it. It's not an add-on. It's not an outlier. So, it, for instance, when we were teaching a basic reporting course, we would say, um, our charge is to cover the community. So uh, we would put up a map and have every student put a pin in uh, where they lived in the community. And for instance, I was in Austin, Texas at the time. And then we'd say, well, look, we have this one little area of, of Austin covered beautifully because all 20 of us live in that area uh, that are going to be covering the community. But look at the rest of the community. How are we going to cover the rest of the community? And if our charge as journalists is to cover Austin and all of, it, all of you live in one area, what about all these other areas of Austin? How are we going to cover those parts? Because that's what journalism is. So it's not making it an add-on or something extra. It's basically saying, this is our charge. This is our fundamental purpose. And so how do we now go about executing that purpose? So uh, that, that sounds like what you're getting at as well in your courses is what is, it has to be a, a core value. And then you sort of build out from the core value. But if it's not a core value, I think it's easily dismissed or seen as an extra. Mm-hmm. I love how you flipped it. <laughs> That's a great, I'm taking notes. Yeah, and it, it made it seem, uh, this, is, this is what journalism is. You know, this is, this is what, and I think you could say the same thing about almost any, any curriculum, right? This is a fundamental part of who we are and what we're supposed to do and what our charge is. So it's not, uh, it's not anything strange or unusual or after the fact. It should be a core value in everything we do. Thank you for that. Absolutely. Absolutely. I think, I think everyone is struggling with the best way to incorporate it. Um, one thing that, that I've been struck by, you know, Santa Clara University just hired a, uh, a new VP for, for, D, for diversity, equity, and inclusion, which is great. That this is a position yeah. that didn't exist before. And our president has stated the intention of becoming an anti-racist university. So beyond kind of DEI in a way and, and you know, really taking a stand to be an anti-racist university. And um, when we were interviewing the candidates for this position, which were a phenomenal, you know, slate of incredible talented, you know, incredible talent, every single one of them mentioned that as the re- one of the reasons why they wanted to come. Now we're, now we're, figuring that out. Like, okay, so what exactly does that mean and how do we get there? Mm -hmm. But I think, Mm -hmm. you know, at least being clear and public and transparent and stating your intention is a first, I don't know, a first step. And then, then you got to follow through (laughs) with action. And I think, yeah, exactly. Mm -hmm. That's fabulous. So uh, folks on a podcast can't see, uh, can't see us, <laughs> but uh, so they don't have an opportunity to see all this great art behind you on the wall. And I know that you're interested and involved with female artists. Can you talk a little bit about that work? So here, okay, partly I'm an international development economist, right? But, and that is an incredible privilege to be hosted in countries all over the world. And I have to say, there's this part that you go into meetings, you're with the Ministry of Finance, you're looking at 
really sad statistics. We talked about some of them, chronic hunger, illiteracy rates, poverty, how harsh it can be, um, infant mortality rates, da, da, da. And then there's a whole conversation we would never really have, which is beauty, resilience, culture, the authorship, writers, artists. And so for me, I kind of needed to compartmentalize my brain in every place I went to, which is, this is what I'm here for. And then this is what I'm just so privileged to have access to. And if sometimes development may not quite work, I just need to, I don't know, this is another way to invest in a country. And and artists tell you a story in a different way that ministries of finance do. <laughs> and so that was something, you know, um, my family would say the scariest thing is her unleashed in a country and having a weekend free because who knows what she'll come back with. <laughs> and so for years I did that. And, and then it got to be where friends would say, oh, I love the artwork, like get me some artwork and blah, blah, blah. And I would lug artwork around more to help artists because they need help everywhere. And when I left the World Bank, I thought I would love to do this, but do it as a social venture. And my friends have all collected. I brought back canvases or connected friends, but how do I spread this wider? And I came up with this idea to say, if I get art and work with nonprofit organizations that I really value and use art as a way, art as a way to tell stories and raise funds for the cause, right? So it's a social venture. And I assumed the art world was, I, what did I know? I don't have, as you said, Bridget, I don't really, I'm not a professor in training and I'm not an art curator by training other than the fact that I love art and always have. But as I started to look, and I thought this would be like a very, what do you call um, a gender neutral area? And in fact, actually pro-women area, right? Women have always been involved in the arts and crafts and so forth. And then I think really to my surprise, I found that no, really here too, women had to hide, couldn't sign their names or had to sign male names because they weren't allowed to do portraiture, right? Or um, women are, are actually in art schools, 75% of a lot of MFA students around the world, 50 to 75% are female artists, but then only 5% of the walls of museums, <laughs> only 5% of artists exhibited in museums around the world are women artists. So what's with that? And I was very surprised by that. And I thought, so, okay, I want to work, do something in the art space, but now I'm going to make it proactively. Again, I wish I didn't have to make it about female artists, but I decided I'm going to make it about female artists. And I wanted to test the hypothesis, like, why are there so few women? Are they not painting beautiful work? Or what's the story here? And then I found, of course not. It's the same story as it is in many other fields, right? And uh, women are telling fabulous stories. So I, I, I collect art, but really I collect stories. What are the issues women care about? What are they talking about? Behind me right now is a Palestinian artist. I can't show you these so well, but they talk about what does war mean for women? And this is a Palestinian artist who's a child of war. And she's looking for, she said, she's always looking for that fragile space between war and love. And that's what her art depicts. And so, and she paints and her work is all printed on found paper. Again, heritage, memory, um, loss and how do you bring that all together? There's a woman behind who does these spoofs about cultural heritage. And now, you know, a lot of this art and the goddesses in India, but then you've got the selfie culture. So she's, she's the young artist who does this whole spoofiness. But a lot of them are just telling really meaning stories of cultural heritage, stories of um, why is it wrong? Why is it, why, why are women considered impure when they menstruate in South Asia? There was a whole series on that. 
And I use that for an exhibition for uh, Change, which is an organization focused on women's reproductive and health rights. Um, and so the story of women are impure when they menstruate. Um, and so many artists depicting that was the theme we used for that. So yes, um, so that's what I do. It is sheer love. And I have to say, there's a very selfish element, right? Like there's only so much wall estate one has. And I didn't want to stop supporting artists and buying art. So I needed a way to to share the beauty. So that's what I do with this social venture, working with different nonprofits, using art as a way to share stories that connect with their mission um, and raise funds for them and support women artists around the world in the meantime. And it feeds my soul. <laughs> well, it's just beautiful. I mean, I, I love the, the work that you're doing and I've been to a couple of your shows and they are really moving to hear. It's really moving to hear the stories of all the different uh, women. And I'm impressed by how you're able to hold those stories in your head, you know, so many artists and it feels like you, you know, each and every one and you do. And that, that's one of the cool things. Um, I'd like to ask you, you know, what advice would you give to your younger self? Well, um, and what advice maybe do I give my students who I sort of <laughs> maybe fuse with younger self? Forget, um, uh, yeah. <laughs> You know, I say, like, just don't self-doubt so much. Don't wonder. You know, we all carry those stories. We carry so many other voices in our heads. We still do. We never stop carrying other voices. And, and many of them are voices of wisdom we should always retain. But there are so many of those self-questioning voices, right? Not enough. Um, I mean, Michelle Obama carries that in her becoming. Not, not enough. Um, or, you know, this imposter syndrome. Women carry the imposter syndrome in their heads more than men do. Um, that's just, there's evidence around that. Um, so, so often I say, you know, just don't question yourself so much. Just be confident in the moment um, and just enact. Don't limit yourself to, oh, I'm going to be a professional in this one space. Like just have, have lots of things that keep you occupied. You know, if you played music as a kid, keep it up. If you loved um, sports, like just keep pieces of your life because you're so much more than the profession or the title you carry. And you don't want to lose all those other pieces, right? That nourishes you and keeps you going. I always tell women, and it's something I had to learn over time, you know, you, you're in a conference and you think, oh, if I ask that question, they're going to be like, who let her in? Ask the question. And I was always so anxious to do that. And I would sit there, should I, should I not, should I not? And somebody would say, oh, that was a brilliant question. You know, you know that feeling, right? And so, and you're not really known in your field. So to overcome that, I would go sit in the first or second row at a conference. So I didn't have to see all those heads in front of me, which would intimidate me to use my voice. Like, like brain hacks, right? Or I often say when you go into a room and often in the formal institutions we work in, important people sit at the main table and the less important sit on the fringes. So I always say, go sit. If you're on time and there's a seat, sit there. Very few people ever ask you to leave. And while you occupy that seat, use your voice and don't speak in a question mark. Just ask it or say it and say it with confidence. Fake it till you make it. You know, that whole Amy Cuddy thing. You all have seen the Amy Cuddy work, right? Fake it till you make it. And I know it's been scientifically, whatever, a lot of question marks, but if it works, Go for it. So, so just that, like, use your space, use your voice, occupy the seat, tell yourself you belong. And then, you know, and then if you believe that, others believe it too. And always be an ally. Just always be an ally, right? Allyship. Right. 
Right. That's a really important piece, I think. Especially for people who you feel in the moment don't have voice. You know, it happens so often. Somebody speaks and that person doesn't get credit and somebody else gets credit for the idea because they take a good idea and they say it bigger and louder and maybe um, always redirect and say, hey, you know, I loved the point that you made. And, and redirected to that first person who made the point maybe not as loudly or maybe was too junior to get the acknowledgement or maybe was an other for that context. And so I always say just practice allyship always. Be on the balcony, be on the dance floor, watch what's happening around you and just just give allyship. I think so often students don't understand even their relationships with each other are going to resonate throughout their career, right? You know, they're, they're starting to form patterns and friendships and behavior that, uh, you know, you'll they're going to know each other. They're going to have some of those relationships their whole career, and they're sort of setting the tone for what's ahead right then. I wanted to ask you another question, which has to do with identity and your identity. You know, you're Nepali, but you've lived all over the world. You, you know, like, so how... Can you reflect a little bit on your thinking on that (laughs) and in the context of, you know, everything that's been going on? It's such a laden question these days. It's a question I actually never deeply thought about because I was always a majority. Growing up in Nepal, I was a majority person in a majority country, presumably, but my mother was Indian and my last name is Indian. So growing up, I always had this sense where I was told you don't belong. In Nepal, people would turn around and it's still so, so, and it still was like, well, you have a different last name. My father was originally, his family was from India too. So growing up in a small country where ethnicity, uh, your last name, everybody places you right away. Uh, My parents were taller than everybody else. We looked a little bit different as a result. So there was a sense of otherness then and wanting to kind of belong. I think coming to the U.S. was a whole different experience when I came as a student. Um, so even though I thought I was kind of different from a majority person coming to the U.S. and being asked a lot of strange questions, like, did you speak English before you came here? And, you know, I would have arrived yesterday and I actually spoke better then than I do now, I think so. But asking questions like, you know, did you speak English? You know, or I went to Minnesota in the winter and people would ask me, how do you, how are you sometimes all year round? You know, do you sometimes? And I, they were just like questions of being so... But I never thought of those in any way other than people haven't met people from where I came from. And that's fine. They were curiosity questions. I feel like we've lost our innocence now with identity. What was curiosity is now racism. You know, now saying, where are you from is a bad question to ask. I ask it all the time because I'm genuinely curious where people are from or their backgrounds. And I was told recently, like, that's not a cool thing to ask. It's like, how did we lose our innocence? But but we have, and we should on so many dimensions. I feel at home in most, I feel like I can resonate with every country I'm in, but I'm always on the outside, a little bit on the cusp. Mm. And I never felt that in America, but I now feel that in America. I never thought of myself as an other, but now I do. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because we've been having conversations every two weeks at Miller Center, we have this social justice forum that... Um, where we discuss different things. And at one of the more recent ones, we were talking about racism against Asians because of everything that's been going on. And some of the folks on the team who have some background um, there talked about their experience of people asking those kinds of questions and feeling like, you know, 
hey, I'm American, you know, as, as anyone else. And, you know, why are you asking me these questions? And it, it is an, you know, it is kind of an interesting piece. We just have to re, I guess, recalibrate um, our assumptions and the way we think about um, what's okay to ask and what's not okay to ask. Well, we're getting there. I think we're trying to, we're all learning together. And we're having the conversations. Yeah. So this has been Line of Sight with Mohini Malhotra. I'm Bridget Helms, Executive Director at Miller Center for Social Entrepreneurship at Santa Clara University. And I'm Don Hyder. I'm the Executive Director of the Markula Center for Applied Ethics. Thank you so much for being with us today. Thank you all. It was such a fun conversation. 